0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're joined with a legend in the field, a luminary of children's advocacy, who has built up an organization that has become the nation's strongest voice for children and families. The EdCast is proud to welcome to Harvard the president and founder of the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Edelman. Hello. So to our listeners who may not be familiar with the CDF, the mission is profound and clear, to ensure every child a healthy start, a head start, a fair start, a safe start, and a moral start in life, and successful passage to adulthood with the help of caring families and communities. How does this mission play out in the work of the CDF?
1: Well, that is our mission, and it plays out in a lot of hard work. I thought that we would be out of business by now. We're approaching our 40th anniversary in 2013, and we figured that if we told people about the conditions of America's children, um, and um, the suffering of America's children, and that a majority of America's children, for example, don't read at grade level in fourth, eighth, or twelfth grade, and don't have high quality early childhood experiences that many of us who are more privileged have, and that there are millions of children without health care. Um, and that it would really help children be um, successful, it would also save us taxpayers money because every child you give prenatal care means that they're gonna avoid costly low birth weight babies in emergency room care. If they get the immunizations, saves taxpayer money. If you educate them, um, that means you're gonna save billions in dropout cost. Um, And if you um, invest in them before they get um, um, into adulthood and don't let them grow up poor, you're gonna save about a half, trillion dollars in care. You know, we have 15 and a half million poor children in America, um, a majority of them growing up in working families, and every year we let that number of children stay poor is costing us a half, a 500 billion dollars in foregone productivity. So saving children is the right thing to do in a society. to professes to want to have an even playing field, but it is also the cost-effective thing. And I am convinced and hope that we can say it long enough and loud enough until somebody wakes up and hears it, that our chief national security problem and economic problem is not from any enemy without. It is our failure to invest in all of our children before they get sick, before they drop out of school, before they get pregnant too soon, before they get into trouble. And I just hope that one of these days we're going to get it and that we're going to reverse the misguided priorities that would rather give tax cuts to people who don't need it and take money out of Head Start children.
0: You say someone has to wake up. Who, who is that someone?
1: It's us, all of us, all of us. Um, our leaders have to wake up, but leaders get awakened by citizens um, with a voice. And children don't vote, and they don't lobby, and they don't make campaign contributions, and so they are voiceless. And there are advocates like me, but we can't do it by ourselves. And it really has to be um, mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and ordinary citizens who just think it's wrong. Um, for the richest nation on earth to let its citizens, its children to be the poorest group of citizens. So it's got to be a citizen's voice and a citizen's movement.
0: And if you look back on the Children's Defense Fund, they, uh, their milestones are countless, from increasing Head Start funding to organizing Stand for Children, launching Haley Farm. Maybe this is like asking to choose your favorite child. But was there a milestone that was particularly most satisfying to you over all these years?
1: Uh, well, I think if you look at it, um, I think their framework of laws um, that um, we're very proud that didn't exist when we began. We were instrumental in getting the right of disabled children to go to school. and It starts expansion, obviously. The Stand for Children, which occurred in 1996, was an impetus for the Children's Health Insurance Program. And my son Jonah is now doing grassroots organizing and education reform. He carried it on to the next phase of building movement out in states. And I'm very proud of that. But often I say that, you know, since Social change is very hard and unglamorous. Um, While well, I'm pleased with the laws, I'm pleased with the millions of children who've had a chance to get health care and head start and child care, and um, a lot of it has been all the things that you didn't ever hear about, the bad laws that didn't get, repe- um, get enacted, the, um, the regulations that didn't get repealed, the budgets that didn't get cut, because it's just hard persevering scut work. But we've made a lot of progress, but, boy, we have a lot of problems that we have to finish um, confronting. And that's not going to happen again unless we build movement. We know what to do for children. There are many best practices out there, but the challenge now is to move them to scale and into policy and into effective implementation so that no child in this country goes without health care. Now, we struggle very hard to make sure that children, um, all children, would get health care in the, in the Health Reform Act. Um, We didn't get all the reforms we wanted. We're still fighting a 50-state battle, but 95% of all children now have access to care. But getting them actually enrolled um, and simplifying procedures in every state um, is a big job, and so we've set out that goal of trying to get that done, but we've got new tools. But a long way
0: to go. I'm curious. Your educational journey could say a lot about a person, what they decide to do. You went to Spelman, then you to Russia, to Yale Law and beyond. What has been the driving force behind your commitment to education and why children? Why children? Why not children?
1: I guess I think I do um, um, children of the future. Um, I think that all of us have put it on this earth to make sure that we leave it better for the next generation and it's very sad right now that this may well be the first time in our history that our children won't do as well as we did and I'm particularly concerned as a black mother um, that black children are moving fast behind um, with this cradle-to-prison pipeline and the growth in poverty and illiteracy. But our children generally are not doing as well as we did, and we have got to readjust our values and our priorities in this nation. But education was always valid in my home, um, and books were always there. We didn't even have a second pair of shoes that my father and mother read, and we were expected to read, um, and we were expected to achieve, and we were expected to achieve in order to give back because they really believed that service is the rent you pay for living. So I do what my parents did. My mother took in 12 foster children after I left and raised them. Um, but it was about service. And so I realized I do exactly what my parents do. I just did it on a different scale. And I've always had very strong role models and mentors. And when I went to Spelman College, um, there was Dr. Benjamin Mays, who was the mentor for... Um, all of us in for Dr. King and for generations of young people and I was very lucky to have Howard Zinn come in as a freshman with me as chairman of the history department and he was a very important force in my life. So I've been very lucky. I've had great people um, and it has, that has converged with great historic events and to be where I was when I was and who I was with these wonderful people. And historic events has just been a blessing.
0: Yeah, so speaking about the historical events you've been part of, uh, having been part of the Civil Rights Movement and now the movement to reform education, what are the similarities and differences between the two?
1: Well the, the, there are phases in movements and movements and the Civil Rights Movement obviously was extraordinary and the fact that a small band of people with very few resources and as a young person being a sit-in kid in the 1960s and then being a civil rights lawyer in Mississippi in the, in, in the middle 60s, it shows you what individuals can do if they just determine that they're going to change injustice. And the idea that legal apartheid that had been here for hundreds of years could be overturned um, in a few decades um, with leadership from a lot of people um, is extraordinary. Today, things are a lot more complex. They are economic, they are social. It requires some sacrifice on the part of everybody. Um, and um, the intertwining of the economy and the structural change in the economy um, with everybody's insecurity, with the globalization of the economy, with technology, which makes it very much more difficult. Technology has be, has its very good sides. But I tell you, in this, this, this narrow casting place where everybody can sort of have a voice, it has its downsides because you can't really get 10 seconds worth of attention or 20 seconds worth of attention during the civil rights movement. You had three networks. All of us saw the same dogs in Birmingham um, or the same um, fire hoses and you could see the same injustices, but when you had three networks and and, and you could really have thoughtful news discussions and you had a group of very well-trained civil rights reporters boy, is it hard to kind of deal with complex problems today in this 10-second quest culture that is obsessed with entertainment and violence and bleeding, but not with solutions. And so, you know, it's very much more challenging, plus the fact that it's economic and it's multifaceted. Um, and people keep saying, you know, what one thing would you like to do for children? I say, well, I don't know any parent who would choose between feeding their children and housing their children and giving them safe childcare and giving them a decent education. So it's, it's more complex and there are many more forces that militate against it.
0: I'm curious uh, how the Children's Defense Fund has changed over time, but concurrently, how has the CDF changed you as a leader over the years? I think it's forced one
1: to be, to, 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 to grow, to learn, to kind of stay alert. We have not changed our vision of what the country ought to do for children, and I simply want for children what I want for my own children. That's what good policy should be. Um, And so the the vision of the Children's Defense Fund to make sure that no child is left behind. That came from us, and Mr. Bush hijacked it, ruined the the brand, Um, but it's a right vision that there should be an even playing field. I believe that every child is sacred. But what we do is that we do change um, strategies, and you have to stay fresh, and you have to stay creative, and you have to sort of be attuned to changes all around you. And so you go through different phases, and institutions go through different phases of development. And in the first 10 years, um, and in fact, we started here, in many ways out of the Harvard Ed School. and Many of our first staff were here um, and started over in Cambridge, um, on Cambridge Street on the corner of Prescott. Um, and we were defining the needs and, and of children because they were invisible. Mm-hmm. And the first big publication was a two-issue edition of the Harvard Education Review, which laid out the rights of children. Hillary Rodham Clinton, she was not Clinton then, wrote a piece on the rights of children and There was, that was a defining period and for the first 10 years we defined the problems of children out of school and the problems of school discipline, children in adult jails, children without homes, children in the mental health system. And so it was a definitional period of, of, of raising awareness that we were not what we thought we were and that there were millions of children being left behind in this country. Then we began to experiment with how you change it at the national level at the state level and started opening up state offices in places like Mississippi and to build that state base. And then we began to try to talk about how you organize people. Um, because after a while, after 10, 15 years, it was pretty clear that, you know, children's movement was very, there wasn't a children's movement, very fragmented, the child care people didn't talk to the juvenile justice people, didn't talk to the child welfare people. So you had to figure out ways of getting them all together. But even if you got them all together and tried to teach them how to become more organized, um, self-interest prevails. Um, We knew we had to reach out in mainstream children's issues. And so in addition to trying to organize the converted, we were trying to convert the organized. And we began to reach out to the mainstream faith denominations, to women, um, to the business community, to say, hey, it's in your self-interest. You want a future workforce? And we need to say that right now to this Country, You may not like these poor and black and Latino children, but they're going to be a majority of your child population and workforce by 2019. Get on with it. I mean, so it's cheaper to sort of educate them than not to sort of educate them. It's cheaper to educate them well than um, to put them in prison and states are spending three times more on average per prison than for public school pupils. What a dumb investment policy. And so we've laid out all these things. We spent a lot of time in trying to show people that we know how to solve these problems, that their best practices and that their solutions. Now you got to build the political will to make those solutions real and universal and to incorporate them into policy. And that requires movement and organizing and voice and it's more complicated, as I say, in this new era. Um, but we've got to do it. But we've got a long way to go.
0: This is a very time-appropriate question. Uh, you're an accomplished commencement speaker. I believe you've given the third most amount of commencement speeches, only behind Bill Cosby and Bill Clinton you're in America. Teasing. You're teasing. You're Where did you get that from? That's uh, from one of my fact-checkers. I believe uh, that's I've correct. I've never heard of that before. We, we, can, we, can, we can get you those facts. If they're wrong, we'll edit this out. I do believe you've made a lot of speeches, thus making you the number one most popular commencement speaker, not named Bill. Oh, So, (laughs) So my question to you is this. How do you prepare for those speeches? What goes into that? How do they change over time? I prepare
1: for them by how I live. I talk about what's on my mind. I talk about children all the time. I talk about poverty. I talk about service. I talk about priorities and values. Um, And I talk about the experiences of of our lives. I read a lot. Um, I talk to lots of people. But basically, I think that this country needs to redefine how it measures success and that we need to begin to challenge the excessive materialism and militarism and greed that Dr. King warned could destroy us and so I think I probably feel like a broken record but I try to stay fresh with stories and fresh with the kind of things that people can do and while I lay out a lot of problems and I will constantly draw on my childhood experiences um, I try to say here's what you can do. Um, to make this country what it says it wants to do and how we can begin to redefine success in this country. And I find young people listen, Um, and I feel like an old mother hen. Now that you tell me that I've been around a lot, um, that um, I find young people who do remember a speech from 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, And I got one kid three times. I got one child at Milton Academy and then she graduated from Connecticut College and she won the Community Service Award at Connecticut College and then I got at Columbia Law School. So I figured she was all right and on the right path. But I'm so pleased that some young people have listened and heard and that hopefully have made a difference. So
0: to the new wave of commencement speakers in the next few weeks who are going to be giving them across the country at colleges and universities, do you have any tips as as an old pro?
1: Really take young people seriously. I mean, I, stay away from the slogans. Um, really, try to help young people where they all are, and I think that they um, they respond to authenticity. Um, and um, and 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 I am um, I've always been moved that they've been moved, and they moved me. And since they are the ones who are going to have to ultimately build this movement, I I struggle with what I say, and I try to be fresh, um, and I try to give them some sense of direction from the lessons that that. I've learned in my life um, and and hopefully they'll take some of them that will find them useful.
0: We've had 15 minutes together and this is our last question. Uh, What can our listeners do right now as soon as this podcast ends to help the cause of children?
1: Vote for children. We're in the middle of an extraordinary period of, of the direction of where the direction of this country is at stake. The budget drives the policy. I cannot believe in Washington that we're sitting here with a budget debate where people are proposing to cut programs for children and for the poor at a time when we have 15.5 million a half million poor children, 44 million poor Americans, and they are refusing to put revenues on the table. They want to continue tax breaks for people who are millionaires and billionaires at a time when the gap between rich and poor um, is at the highest ever. Wake up and understand that what we're doing is watching an attempt to hijack the country's values, the country's future. I mean, it's simply wrong to give corporate subsidies and, and, and big tax cuts while children don't have enough to eat, while we have homelessness growing, when children are not educated, when children don't have the childcare, when their parents work. Get involved, vote. Hold your leaders accountable because, again, you know, they need to hear from you when they come back home. You need to say, do not cut children. Do not cut the poor in order to give the rich. And so be involved, be awake,
0: because it's a very dangerous time. Mary right, Edelman, thank you so much for all the work you've done for all of us, for children, and all the good commencement speeches that we will thank be checking you. on that fact afterwards. Oh
1: my goodness, I've never <laughs> heard of such a fact. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. This is the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.